and welcome to episode one of Repertory Screenings. I'm your host, M. With me is my co-host, Kyle. Good morning. It's time for movies. Are you excited to actually talk about movies today instead of last time where we just kind of faffed about for 10 minutes? Um, yes, I am excited. What the um, what the listeners don't know is that off the mic, we spent 90 minutes listening to me complain about my own personal troubles about the short film I was doing, but that is not for here. That was last episode. This right. episode, we just got in a call. It's very exciting. Um, we're here to talk about two movies today. We're going to be talking about Cabaret and Spectre. Um, the way this stuff works typically is we will lightly recap the movie, but we're not going to worry about talking about spoilers. I assume we're going to talk about the entire movie. If that's not your scene, well, next month, hopefully, the movies will be more to your taste or whatever. You can come back. Um, that's how this goes. How do you Kyle, spoil Cabaret? I, I, like, I didn't know entirely what it was about. I knew it was about, uh, Nazis and a cabaret, but that's as far as it went. But, like, you can't spoil cabaret. That's what I find difficult about spoiler culture. I think spoiler I, culture is, is self-perpetuating nonsense. You. I agree with you, but there's plenty of people who listen that do not, and so I'm going to be upfront with these podcasts that we're going to just talk about the films. I appreciate so. the transparency. Um, what have you been up to? You've been watching anything good lately? Um, last night I went to see The Gospel of Andre, uh, which is a documentary uh, about Andre Leon Talley, who was editor-at-large at Vogue. I don't know if he still has that position, um, mm. but it's it presents itself ostensibly as a fashion documentary in the style of like the September issue by R.J. Cutler and the first Monday in May um, by uh, Andrew Rossi, um, and it uses... Andre is like a primary figure within the fashion world. Um, and it's not very good, unfortunately. Do I talk about like what I thought about the film? Yeah, sure, if you okay. want, briefly. Um, yeah, so the film is really caught between wanting to treat Andre Leon Talley, who has this very um, big personality. He's very um, impressive looking. He's very large in, in statue, very tall, um, stature, very tall, um, very uh, intimidating almost. Um, and it's caught between wanting to treat him as this intellectual subject matter of what um, blackness, what black queerness means within that social strata, within that world of fashion, and wanting to look at his persona as this very um, generous, forth- somewhat forthcoming person who has ideas of what style and beauty are but the problem is that it's never really able to reconcile the two approaches or ideas or or perspectives of of who andre is which then kind of makes the movie kind of boring and um also the andre leon talley that's in this movie is not a very interesting person like i don't they want to posit the fact that he has this egalitarian idea of what style and beauty is without actually and inferring that he has perspective about what that means like shouting out style beauty style cultivate your garden of beauty doesn't i don't think actually um gives any sort of specificity of what style or beauty means to him specifically and then how that can be extrapolated to a larger philosophy about about what style beauty and fashion are especially if the title is going to be the gospel according to andre so it's really disappointing and as someone who kind of likes fashion documentaries and has a light proclivity towards 
textiles as an, as an art form. It's like, this is not good. That's unfortunate. What about you? What have you uh, been up to? What have you been seeing? Uh, last night, uh, me and my partner Destiny watched Smoke Signals, which is uh, the 1998 movie uh, by Chris Ayer, which is a uh, coming-of-age story, with uh, notable because the entire cast is uh, Native American, and the crew, generally. Um, it was written by Sherman Alexie, uh, who probably best not to get too into uh, on this podcast, but... Uh, it uh it's it's interesting in that like it definitely feels of a type of like 90s like big eye indie cinema um in that like everyone is a very specific type of character with very loud fashion and um i thought of like early works of like spike lee watching this movie mm -hmm. uh is the thing it evoked um i it's a little more uh wrapped up in like the sense of community building than those early spike like like pre pre do the right thing spike lee specifically um it's a little more wrapped up in like the problems and interests of the community on the reservation that they live on um uh but i found it really delightful uh we'll probably talk about it more on your faves of never which is me and destiny's podcast because we always talk about our movie night movies um i didn't realize you had movie nights now Yep, every Friday we try to watch two. Last night, uh, we only got through one and Dusty was tired. So we're going to watch the other one uh, today. Oh, very nice. We're watching, we're watching, gosh, what is it called? Where is it? Soul Spirits of the Dead for our I'm next movie. not familiar. Uh, I do not know. It is a, it looks like it's a bunch of shorts, maybe? Uh, yeah, it's three directors doing post short stories it's like fellini malay and roger oh Bobby. oh wait i know what you're talking about the fellini one has terrence stamp in it doesn't it yes yeah that one is really weird well uh, destiny obviously picked that one <laughs> i'm looking yeah. forward to watching it uh, yeah, but that I is on the agenda for today i saw it screened before um teorama the pasolini film okay um with that out of the way let's get into our movies What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. It's time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret Come taste the wine Come hear the band Come blow your horn Start celebrating Right this way your table's waiting What good's permitting Some prophet of doom To wipe every smile away. So our first movie this month is Cabaret Cabaret is a 1972 a musical drama Directed by Bob Fosse It stars Liza Minnelli, Michael York, Joel Grey uh, who are the ones listed on Wikipedia? It is uh, based on the Broadway musical by the same name. 
Um, it is set in Berlin in 1931, and it, Liza Minnelli plays Sally Bowles, who is a American working at a cabaret club called the Kit Kat Club. Uh, she meets a young British guy named Brian Roberts who came over uh, and is living here and is the most stuffy man. The two of them flirt with a relationship. Um, he is a stuffy, closeted, bisexual academic, and she is a sleep-with-anyone, carefree uh dilettante i guess in this era and the two of them have sexual misadventures with people as nazism rises in berlin um amid musical numbers Um, whoa i i am the flippancy with which with musical numbers is said just like made me flinch (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) and Uh, i don't believe ryan is closeted i just don't like i I don't think he advertises it but i don't think that's fair um, the, the way in which she has to draw out that he is like bisexual or he, he assumed basically assumes that he's gay at the beginning of this movie. And that turns out to not necessarily be the case. Um, the way that she draws it out and he rejects it seemed to me struck me as like he's closeted. Um, I would disagree with that because, uh, he, one of the appeals to him traveling to Weimar, uh, Republic Germany is that there is the sense of freedom and um sexual misadventure misadventure and and kind of this counterculture of of queerness within within that area that was then of course destroyed by the nazis and the third reich but like that's part of why he went that makes sense uh yeah no uh so this is one of your favorite movies you said right yes Mm -hmm. i um yeah go ahead oh i uh I mean, I grew up watching a, a lot of musicals um, with my mom, and Cabaret was one of the films that struck me quite a bit. Um, at the at that time, it was the visual feast and the the um, how intoxicating the personalities were. And then, as I grew up, I kind kind of came to understand the implications regarding fascism regarding politics on stage stage is performance politics is performance etc etc and plays Manelli is just wonderful even though she technically technically does not make sense as the character that was that was written because cabaret is not only based on a broadway musical but broadway musical is based on another play called i am a camera and that play is in turn based on christopher ishwood's berlin stories um which includes goodbye to berlin um mm-hmm. and the in that process of adaptation, there are a lot of weird details and weird aspects of that story because um, those books were semi-autobiographical. Um, mm-hmm. And they were actually adapted into a BBC film with one of the one of the guys who was Doctor Who um, called Christopher and His Kind. And that was supposed to serve as a, quote, more accurate version of Gabourey. Um, mm. But um, through the, like... 30-ish year process of adaptation and how that story continued to morph. There's really interesting and weird ways in which um, those ideas about either about politics or about performance or about sexuality are kind of switched in and out or like modulated depending on the production or the version of that story that's being told. Like I'm a camera tempers down a lot on the sex on the more queer stuff 
Um, mm. The musical, the Broadway musical version also tempers down on that and changes the story quite a bit. Whereas Cabaret, when they were adapting it, when Bob Fosse was adapting it, he wanted to go back to the original stories and make it a little bit more explicitly queer, um, a little bit, um, a little edgier. And then when it was readapted for the revival um, in the early 90s, like 94-ish, I think, by Sam Mendes mm. and Rob Marshall, um, they created a hybrid between the film and the musical and the original novels. Um, and so the reason why Alan Cummings performs as the MC, who is the guy who the MC is the master of ceremonies. And he is essentially kind of the, the entry point into this particular world within the film and within the story in general. But the reason why Alan Cummings performance as that character, you can see clips on YouTube and whatnot is as, um, gender fucky as it is, is because they wanted to go back to the original stories and then subvert that initial primness that was presented in a lot of the adaptations. So, like, one of the most important aspects of that um, Broadway production, the Mendes production, was that they painted his nipples, which isn't seen in in, um, the film version, but the film version kind of compensates for that by covering him in makeup and, like, you can't tell if he's a clown or if he's this very sinister monster covered in makeup. It's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the thing I was struck by, and I didn't realize going in, is that the musical numbers are all limited to cabaret performances, with the exception of one. Um, which I know is an adaptation of the original show. The Broadway show just has musical throughout. But I was really surprised by this. Uh, because... I, I was expecting this to be in like the context of a modern musical, like the songs would be sung by the characters, like in the lens of a musical where it would advance the plot. And instead, because they're all performances, they end up being more like the Greek chorus, like commentary on the plot. And uh, I found that jarring, not necessarily in a bad way, just it surprised me. I was not expecting this. I was expecting a more traditional musical. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I like that about it. I mean, I don't think it's entirely um, atypical of a lot of musicals. I think, uh, not that I have the an authority about musical theater history. No, is, yeah, I, I also am not an authority about this. So, but like, I am familiar enough with them that you have you basically um, are split between musicals that use the music as a as this meta commentary, this Greek chorus on the plot, and then you have musicals that use it to advance advance the plot. Um, I don't think that the music in, um, Cabaret necessarily, I don't think, I would disagree to, I would disagree in saying or categorizing the way that the music is employed as only being weak chorus, because I think something like maybe this time, um, mm-hmm. is there to, um, advance plot. It's, it's Sally's I Want song as it were. Yeah. No, especially since Sally is typically not given a lot of like in- interiority in the plot part of the movie. Like it, all that stuff is offloaded to her stage presence. I feel like. I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I, uh, I feel like the movie's focus like narratively ends up resting a little too much on Brian for my taste. Um, mm, okay. That's interesting. Um, um, especially in like the latter half where it becomes about him realizing the like doomed nature of everything as she pulls away from him. I don't mind that. 
may okay maybe i don't so much dis- disagree with that assertion as like i don't mind it and i think it's um at least in the context of this film helpful because mm-hmm. like you can't be sally if you were sally then if the if the audience were sally then they'd be oblivious to everything Actually, yeah, no, I don't. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I, I guess my reaction was just kind of surprised by it, uh, and I, I wish there was more Liza Minnelli in this movie than there is, which is ridiculous because she's in a lot of it. But that that's was so still my gut reaction. Oh wow, that's so interesting. Um, I love Liza Minnelli in this in this film. She's great in it, absolutely. But she's also technically uh, what I find th- why uh, why this film works and why Liza Minnelli is both co- correct and incorrect for this character is also why La La Land is not very good. Well, I haven't seen La La Land, so I don't have an answer. What do you mean oh, by that? You haven't seen La La Land? No. Should I still talk about it? I would just like, I, if you could just talk about this movie specifically, about getting two in the weeds on something, a comparison I don't have context for. Oh, uh, okay. Well, so leaving out La La Land, so mm-hmm. the Sally Bowles character is based on a real person, and like she's not talented. She thinks she's talented, but she's not actually very talented. And the arc through the original novel and play and Broadway musical is that she's not very talented, but she really wants to get out of Germany because she's not, she is not actually as, um, unself-aware, um, as a lot of audiences think she is. Um, because she wants to be a star. She's, her main motivation is to be a star, but like she is maybe, peripherally aware that all is not right in the mm-hmm. state of Denmark um, as it were um, whereas in the film version she is actually talented. Liza Minnelli mm-hmm. is a star. She has stage presence she has an extraordinary voice and her inability inability to escape her situation, to escape the um, kind of looming the looming doom of fascism in Germany is even more tragic or is is at least tragic in a very different way because she knows that she has like she has the talent to do it but she can't do it given yeah, the social uh, mit- like given the mitigating circumstances one of the things i did really enjoy about this movie's depiction of that is towards the end when their relationship is starting to dissolve he like accuses her of like being a child play acting at being a femme fatale he's like it's not that's not real like you're not fooling anyone you're not that person and she's not that person and that's the thing i thought that was really interesting because she mm-hmm. never comes across as like the elegant like man-eating socialite that she wants to project right. she just comes across as like like almost like a uh, breakfast at Tiffany's kind of like flighty uh, idealized, like feminine character. Right. Yeah. Um, And in, in that it feels almost like her, her like dooming herself to be stuck here in Nazi Germany is entirely because she can't let go of this vision of herself as like the kind of person she could never aspire to be, right. which even if she's talented, doesn't like necessarily change the tone of why she's stuck there. Yeah, Whether absolutely. It's in the in the original, it's like, oh, I'm not a good enough singer to get out. In this, it's like she can't see herself as anything other than this like, uh, like layabout sleeping with everyone, like a cabaret singer enough to mm. get out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that I think is part of the brilliance of that character in this film. Mm-hmm. She is so caught up in, and in the fact that she. That that persona is up there on stage, and she has trouble, I think, um, delineating between um, who she, quote, actually is and who she continues to project herself to be 
who she wants to be. And because they're... I don't know if naivete is the right word. Or maybe it's just willful naivete. Because of that willful na naivete, being unable to to disconnect those things, that I think is her ultimate downfall. Mm -hmm. This is a shame, but... Somehow. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, what else? Uh, so one of my favorite things I was surprised to find isn't necessarily from the stage play, is from the original stories, which is Fritz and Natalia's side story. Mm. Um, Fritz is just like a like a gentleman who is going. He is trying to uh, win the favor or seduce Natalia, who is like a Jewish heiress living in Berlin, and they both are friends of Brian because Brian teaches them English. Um, but then they end up with hanging out with these two, uh, like you know, Sally and Brian are like lower society poor people who are not these like class of people, but. Uh, the actual plot is that he's interested, Fritz is interested in Natalia, uh, but is is Christian and Natalia is Jewish. She's like, I can never be with someone who's Christian. Uh, and the story, it turns out that Fritz is pretending to be Christian and is actually a Jew and uh, has to admit it to her to get together with her, um, which is uh, like played as this like comedy of manners that's comes out of the like past century like it's 100% like a 19th century uh marriage farce kind of thing mm -hmm. but cast on the specter of they are getting married like as nazis are taking over the country and they are like living their jewishness is very upsetting and i found it uh really interesting in the context of the rest of this movie which is meant to be like oh look at how nazism stomped out this like queer culture uh this vibrant art scene but it also just comes for like the normal people too and the mm -hmm. movie doesn't forget that and i appreciate that yeah absolutely i think the the tension between um the tension between those two things in this film is really interesting because uh, like stomping out the art culture thing not a good thing but i think that is uh, depending on who you talk to ends up being the focus of a lot of maybe people who think about think about the the rise of fascism in a more theoretical way rather than the more experiential way. And I think being able to bridge those two in this film is really interesting. And I think that's also also kind of what leads to Sally's downfall because she's like not really thinking about the the consequences of fascism. Like she I think she is partially aware that something is wrong, but she clearly does not understand the gravity of of those what those consequences could be or end up or will end up being mm -hmm. so like that story would not register to her like mm -hmm. she would i like her reaction would be like just get married like what's the big deal e even if she thought that like the baron were christian um mm -hmm. she has this kind of, again this very flighty some i guess maybe egalitarian perspective where she like anything goes just do it without kind of mm -hmm. understanding the the social ramifications mm -hmm. and her inability to understand the so social ramifications in addition to her projecting a version of herself constantly um without like um, uh, unpacking what that means um in different contexts it also is like why she can't get out of germany yeah whereas brian is 
uh, very aware of the problems here. And mm-hmm. Fritz comes to Brian to talk about, like, reveal, oh, yes, I'm a Jewish person pretending to be Christian. Uh, Brian also has the scene with a Max, who's like the rich benefactor, both him and Sally are sleeping with, where they're in the beer garden and witness, like, a Hitler youth causing, like, a big uh, nationalist I love that scene. musical number. Yes, it's really good. But as they leave, he's, like, chiding Max, like, the with this idea that, oh, like, everyone who was part of the old world just thought they could just control the Nazis, that they were not a big deal. It's like, oh, it's fine. They're, they're just cute nationalists. They won't be a big problem. Oh, hmm, why does that sound familiar? Hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um... I moratorium on any new productions of Capri, by the way. I, I a friend of me a friend of mine was telling me that they had seen a production in Queens. I live in New York for the record. Um, and that they that production very loose very lazily tried to connect um the political context of Capri with the current socio political landscape of the United States. And it was like I think that would be very, very hard to done. do. It would be hard and easy. In a way, it'd be, like, hard to do it well. The connection yeah. there is, like, you don't need to be an acrobat to, to do that. But, like, to do it um, in, in a way that's meaningful is much harder. But let's talk mm. about that scene. Tomorrow belongs to me. Uh, maybe I was a strange child, but I learned how to play that on the violin. And I know how to sing it in the shower. Um, but I was reading an article in um, uh, Sight and Sound by Mark Cousins. Um who is a film critic and scholar, and he did the documentary The Story of Film, which I never finished because I hate the fact that he upspeaks. Um, and That's the one that was on Netflix like yeah. years ago, right? Oh, okay. God. It's... I mean, there's other reasons I didn't finish that because I thought it was kind of obnoxious, but that's neither here nor there. I, I mean, I I love vocal fry, and I recognize that having, having personal pet peeves against... Uh, vocal or speech patterns is indicative of certain class and, and gender stereotypes, but mm. he speaks at a whisper and also up speaks, which is just a no from me. Oh, um, I, I, I just thought the actual content of the, the documentary often left something to be desired. I didn't get that far. I couldn't stomach it. Okay. Anyway, I was reading an article by him in Sight and Sound talking about um, gendered responses to the musical, um, and he was kind of wondering why The Greatest Showman was... Uh, panned so critically um and so heavily by predominantly by male critics um and he kind of theorized that musicals have to have these five things and one of the and that those five things are often have to be debunked because of a gendered response and one of the things like the assumption is musicals are always happy but cabaret is very much emblematic of a musical that is not happy and then that scene Tomorrow Belongs to Me is an incredibly powerful scene. It is a mu- musical scene that is a, and that is a song that advances the plot, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, I think that particular scene is is so chilling because of how how naturally um, everyone begins to stand up and then um, see Kyle just as if nothing else were going on. It is very much, I think, a mirror to the scene in Casablanca where they're singing the French national anthem um, and everyone is crying and everyone in that room happen to be refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the same way that someone just starts singing it and then the entire 
Strong joins in to create this unified, this unified, um, I guess, ideology almost in terms mm-hmm. of what music means as as a communal and social and political thing. Tomorrow Belongs to Me operates in very much the same way, in that like someone just starts singing, like a random Nazi youth, Hitler youth, just starts singing Tomorrow, uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, and then by the end of the scene, everyone is singing, and Brian has to leave because it's like this is awful. Like, do you not realize what's going on here? Yeah, uh, th- it's interesting you brought up Casablanca because as at the end of the movie, I turned to my partner and was like, "This is just Casablanca again," uh, where. Uh, Sally sees Brian off back to Britain as she can't go and isn't going to go and is staying here. And the ways in which they say goodbye reminds me so much of the end of Casablanca and ends up casting Casablanca as like even more of a tragedy than the movie could admit to itself. Mm -hmm. Because Casablanca is so much, I'm letting her go. I'm Humphrey Bogart. I'm like the archetype of a movie star. I'll be fine. And he walks off with his friend and talks about friendship. And in actuality, he probably didn't end up that much different than Sally selling his soul to survive in like a terrible place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I appreciated the honesty of that and the, the way that segues into the final musical scene, uh, that Sally has about the cabaret and, uh, in general, the way in which the general tone of those musics, musical numbers go from like broad queer farce to like regressive, uh, like there's one song that is explicitly like anti-Semitic, and then at the uh, end I she's love that singing, song. and yeah, and at the end she's basically singing in like an old-fashioned dress and just doing like a number that is about cabaret, but nothing about her performance speaks to the cabaret that we saw at the beginning of the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and um, that stuff is all great. <laughs> the anti-Semitic song. Um, again, when I was a child, I used to play that on the violin, and like. I always justified singing it um, to my music teacher. Not that I was in love with my music teacher, just that I knew how to play it by ear. And it's like, this is a great love song except for the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I seven. Uh, yeah, no, I understand. We were all children once, right? Yes. Uh, but I think that's kind of all I have for this, unless you have something else. Um, I will add that the... Again... Regard, regarding the kind of queer aspect and the, the weird um, mutating forms of, of what cabaret is and was throughout its adaptation process, um, in the um, Broadway revival that Mendes and, and Marshall did, the end is a little bit different in that um, the stage becomes a... a the fac- facsimile of um, the gates of a concentration camp, of, of an Auschwitz-like place, and the uh the MC puts on um a jacket with black and white stripes um, that might be that might be a little on the nose i feel like um and on the back is a pink triangle so that's definitely on the nose oh yeah i'm not yeah i would not accuse rob marshall of subtlety by any means but um i just thought that was an interesting thing whereas the film just kind of like stops you have that last sequence, which is an, an inversion of the beginning song, Vilkomen. And mm-hmm. it basically, it, it reverses um, a lot of the camera movements. Um, where yeah. the camera was moving from a, from a reflective surface onto the stage and the audience. It goes in reverse, whereas it moves from the stage and the audience to a reflective surface. Where you just see this very 
distorted view of what the audience is and the audience is full of not full of nazis so like the the social landscape of the of weimar republic germany has changed as well and you can see that the the tone of what that cabaret is going to be is also going to change mm-hmm. because that's because like even though the MC was provocative and would make anti-Semitic jokes and sexual jokes and whatnot, like the point of that space was to get away from that and to kind of challenge the political atmosphere and the, the that was beginning to rise while also trying to give its audience an escape. It was like maybe maybe it was sort of a, a Samantha B. I, know, I hate myself for saying that. For cut that out. Um, okay. It was. It was definitely a space in which um, there was an attempt to challenge the 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 politics that existed in that in in the surrounding space and in, in the mm. outside world that were that were beginning to rise. Yeah, I love cabaret. That's uh, all. That is, know, I'm de- oh, what uh, watching it. I was like, I don't know if I like this that much, but talking with you about it, I'm much more positive on it than I thought I was. Yay. Oh, I'm so glad, because off the mic, Emma was about to tell me that they didn't like Cabaret very much, and I was like, ugh, I was scoffing at them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I when I watched it, I was, it was a bad day, I was very tired, and I didn't dislike it, I was just like, this is a little slow, and maybe uh, that's just me, but, um. Yeah, I will say that its pace is different than a lot of people expect it to be. I, like, base, I was mostly disappointed there weren't more musical numbers. Like, I was expecting it to be full-on, like, plot-driven song musical. Mm. And finding out that it was not that was a it bit disheartening. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you get for making assumptions, I guess. <laughs> I uh, saw this on 35mm last last June, actually, because I came back from Provincetown and I managed to, like, duck in, and it was very beautiful, and it's very formative musical, because I think it, um, it's challenging in a very interesting way but i think Mm -hmm. the things that make it challenging are are overshadowed by the things that make it very easy Mm -hmm. all right uh with that let's move on to our second movie second movie is Spectre from 2015, directed by Sam Mendes, 
Um, it is the 24th film in the James Bond franchise and stars Daniel Craig, Leia Sado, Ray Fiennes, um, Ben Whishaw, Naomi Harris, Dave Bautista, Monica Bellucci, Rory Kinnear, and Crystal Waltz. Um, and Spectre, I, I am, would be the first to tell you as a massive James Bond fan. That anyone who can tell you the plot of a James Bond movie is a fake fan. I disagree. I, I am a big James Bond fan. I can tell you the plot of this movie. <laughs> um, Spectre is about... Um, maybe you should do this, actually. Okay, so Bond is still looking for connections to people who have driven the plot so far. Okay, uh, M- Bond is... Okay, I, I've got this. Bond is still... Yes. Okay. Bond is still looking for people who have connections to the terrorist organization that was implied to be a part of Casino Royale and then Quantum of Solace and then Skyfall. So yeah, what you specifically, have... specifically, M gives him a videotape being like, James Bond, go kill this man. Yeah. Uh... M sends him on a mission to go kill a man. And much of this has a connection to the person that he that that was responsible for the death of, of Vesper Lind in Casino Royale. Um, and this essentially propulsive meta narrative uh, within the four Daniel Craig films, um, mm-hmm. and then as he gets further into trying to understand who these people are as an organization, he kind of gets to um, he conf- begins to confront who the, their leader is, and then their leader was. Um... Do I spoil it here? Yeah, you're fine. Their leader is like a is a poorly disguised, like in the press, very poorly disguised Stavro Blofeld, who is like one of the major villains within the Bond franchise um, earlier. So, and then that has ends up having connections not only to his past missions but also to his his past mythos more generally as a person. Mm-hmm. At the same time, everyone who is not James Bond. Uh, uh, new M, uh, Q, Money Penny are all wrapped up in this new version of like global data collection by governments and cops that is called Nine Eyes. That is, if they all agree on it, is going to open up all of the information and in spy networks across the world and share that data in like a big, like big data AI collection sort of way. And it turns out that all of that is just an arm of Spectre and Blofeld's idea to like create crime and create the uh, business around policing that crime and just getting paid on both ends. Love it. I love capitalism. Yes. Uh, Bond then stops all of that, of course, Mm -hmm. Uh, while falling in love with uh, the daughter of Mr. White, who was the guy in uh, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, right? Yeah. Yes. Who's it's who's like almost single handedly responsible for the death of his lost love? Yes. Um, there's something edible about that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. There's also something edible about the fact that uh, Leia Sadu is like 20 years younger than Daniel Craig, and it sucks. Oh, that's I'm not. No, sorry. That's 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 par for the course for the series. It is par for the course of the series. That doesn't mean that in the case, like idea of modernizing Bond, you should keep doing that stuff. Like, yeah, it sucks when Roger Moore is like a grandpa hanging around <laughs> a young girl, but it still sucks when it's Daniel Craig doing it too. Yes. Although, yes. Okay, I don't disagree. 
I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't disagree. But he does um, get with Monica Bellucci, who is his age. Yes, no, that's great. Uh, but then the rest of the movie is him, like, basically giving up his plot of vengeance because he's in love now with this with someone who could literally be his daughter. I could, I mean, personally, I have done very stupid things for love. Not giving up yeah, my plot no, of vengeance. I, un- but... I understand. I'm just, uh, the movie doesn't grapple with any of that as, like, part of his character. It's just assumed as part of the Bond milieu, and I find that obnoxious. That if they're going to go so far in the in the modern Craig era of trying to deconstruct and reconstruct what Bond means, that they didn't spend any time examining this part of it, just feels like lazy storytelling. I will, okay, so, I okay, I, I agree, but I also think that is, um, it's asking, these films will always end up having to be marketable. And mm. I have very much admired, I feel like I'm putting my tail between my legs and just being like a centrist neoliberal in this discussion. And this is going to make me feel so bad. Um, I, I, um, have very much admired uh, what the, um, General Craig cycle has been doing with deconstructing and reconstructing and unpacking the implications of what Bond means in multiple contexts and connotations. Um, and to what degree that is authorial intent, I don't really care. Um, mm-hmm. but like also these and will end up at, at the very end of the day, these will still end up being James Bond films. And while I would ideally wish that those, that these films would actively grapple with the, ramifications or the implications of having a much older man romance a much younger woman um i think that it could have been a possibility with the next film until they handle until they hired danny boyle danny boyle is uh listed to be the director of bond well, the next let's bond let's film. save the, let's save that till the end we'll talk about that okay <laughs> all right so uh, this is a movie that you and me and a couple of my friends on record is saying is good, actually, despite the fact that most people seem to not like it, which I don't understand. Because um, I'm going to have a lot of critiques here, but they're in the context of I think this is a pretty good Bond movie. Right. I think it, um, I believe people are wrong. Um, I don't I, I think I actually don't know why people don't like it. Um, what I like what I do like about this is that it's weird. It's a weird Bond movie. It is the weirdest, without being um, weird on a plot level, um, like Live and Let Die or um, Moonraker or something like that. This is mm-hmm. a, a weird movie in the sense that while I don't think the Bond films have ever really prioritized plot in, in like a, co- a cohesive or coherent way, this is like, or this is the first Bond film that I think that has prioritized prioritized tone and aesthetic even more so than like the iconography of that milieu of like having all those tropes of the gadget and the Bond girl and the villain, etc. I this like everything ends up being in 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 service of the tone and the aesthetic. Yeah. Which is I something that I definitely I very much don't admire. disagree with that. Yeah, no. It um, opens up rec- it opens oh, up with an epigraph of the dead are alive, and that is something that a Bond movie has never done, and that is something that you could, you can't get away with in most action movies. Like that's just that is pretentious. It is openly pretentious, and I love it. 
Uh, yeah, my reaction the first time I saw this movie was this is a movie about like the last like death throes of global empires represented by the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. like standing in the wreckage of the places they used to own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's littered throughout this movie. Uh, like it opens on Bond walking through Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, like such a vibrant and interesting place to put like this assassin. Um in a much more like grounded personal like frictive way than like there's a lot of cool stuff in Spectre of like Bond being an assassin in like neon sky rises right but that doesn't have the human touch of this opening to mm. him and uh Dr. Swan who is his love interest like standing around the desert in the Sahara waiting for like a car to come pick them up uh-huh. and it's not like a new shiny car it is a car of antiquity that picks them up from like a dusty train station that probably used to run back when this was like an important colonial outpost mm-hmm. like a hundred years ago and the driver uh, is a person of color yeah and all of that seems like speaks to comment on the same way that the plot of like this movie and the past movie of double O agents and what they represent and what bond represents is an old order that has been washed away, whether that's washed away by global capitalism or by the like end of empire building in like the 21st century, they're kind of cast as the same. And this is both the thing that I think aesthetically is interesting. And some of my problem with the plot, they're kind of cast as the same thing. Right. Um, in like a bad horseshoe theory kind of way where like, oh, Bond is useless because the world's moved on, but also Bond is useless because of evil capitalists. And it never talks about the like what Bond represents in Casino Royale or in like original Bond movies is like the like a arm of the government tasked explicitly with going around killing people and destabilizing governments and doing things that we see as the bad functions of statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never wants to really grapple with Bond at his ideal is the British Empire meddling in other people's lives and affairs past what you would think is normal for a state to do. I would say that the reason why it doesn't do that is because the three previous films did. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree. But in seeing this as kind of a capper, and I guess it's not now that there's another one, but in many ways when this movie came out, to me, it felt like the end of the Daniel Craig Bond series, right, like should... thematically. It should have. It's funny you should mention that because when I first saw it, um, I, the person I saw it with did not like it. But when I saw it, it was just like, "Where do you go from here?" This is this is a film that essentially argues that James Bond is useless and does is outdated and either again either because of evil capitalists or because like the British Empire is not is does not exist in the same way that it did. Um, it is instead um, kind of giving way to a more globalized version of it. Of, some sort of empirical thing but anyway um imperial thing and um i was like where what do you do with that afterwards when like you could argue that him driving off in the sunset with uh leia sudo is sort of like the end of modern times where charlie chapman is with the the gammon and they're walking off into into the sunset or you could argue that he died um it's it poses a kind of confusing uh quandary as to where to go next with uh the bond series especially if the bond franchise is seemingly more engaged with the world around it with the politics around it than they have been previously or at least more confrontational about what those politics are um so i don't know yeah i would i would say it's more confrontational than it is like 
thoughtful about it because the actual thematic material here is that big data is bad what we need is unilateral cops who can do whatever on their own do you think that's what it's saying I mean, it's explicitly the stuff with M and Bond versus this Nine Eyes thing is that, oh, spying on everyone is bad. What we actually need is this old order where, like, a guy with a suit and a gun went around and got rid of specific people. I don't uh, think that's what it's saying. I, I don't think it offers an alternative that's not, like, Bond is better than Big Data, which, like, I guess marginally I agree, but I, it doesn't, like, extend past that. Well, I mean, one... Again, I think there are certain limitations within this format. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Like, we always butt up against the fact that this is a Bond movie with certain accoutrements not right. going to get right. rid of. Well, I see the the problem I have with that is, I, while I agree that it does not offer an alternative, I don't agree that it's suggesting that Bond is better than Big Data. I think the, I think part of the appeal of, of placing Bond and juxtaposing this very stylish man that is very much of the old world order against the ruins of of the countries that he had previously either explicitly or implicitly by the British Empire plundered is that mm. oh he's not better like he's out of place like there isn't an easy answer to this neither are good mm. he may be prettier than Big Data but like he's clearly not better um, and I think I don't that's. Know if I, I don't necessarily I, agree that that's the conclusion of the movie, but okay. I think that that's also indicated by Skyfall because Skyfall is mm. very much about the way in which British, the British Empire has transformed. It has all that iconography that essentially taunts um, the taunts MI6 and Bond and M. It's like nothing's good. Everything is mm-hmm. terrible. I think these movies are saying that everything is terrible. Sure, but being myopic is not, like, rigorous good art to me. Oh, I didn't mean that to say it was good art, but I'm just challenging the idea that it's saying that Bond is better Mm -hmm. than Big Data. I don't think that the film is saying that. I think Mm -hmm. it's just saying that everything is bad. Okay. Um, Other than that, my main reaction is uh, I understand that Blofeld is, like, part of the Bond mythos, but I, I don't think using him here is interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, part of it is I don't think Christoph Waltz is like exactly like lighting the screen on fire compared uh, to previous villains. Yeah, that's because I don't think Christoph Waltz is a good actor. Like, he was uh, good. Yeah, no, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. He, he was good in Inglourious Bastards, which is which I thought was sort of a, um, a lark almost, because then he ended mm. up playing, winning an Academy Award for playing the same character in another Tarantino film. Yeah. Um, I, I just, he's either being typecast or he's not a good actor. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am pretty indifferent about, um, Blofeld's presence in this film. And mm-hmm. anything that is interesting to me about that is, has more to do with the way that Bond as, um, as this kind of piece of iconography has been conceived and how it's morphing through time. Um, mm-hmm. and how that is mostly a gateway. I don't think Blofeld is really important in as much as, like, as a means to get to that last scene where he's in that building with the death, with all the pictures of the people that have died in his hands, uh, mm-hmm. which is maybe on the nose, but I was very touched by, like, such a blatantly, um, 
metaphorical set piece. It's like him traveling mm-hmm. around through his psyche and reconciling with memory and and trauma. And I liked that. I like yeah. I like the film. I I the reason why I like the Craig cycle is because they are able to explore both kind of the the metatextual stuff about politics and uh and um what what bond's place may be in a modern world as well as kind of the more personal aspects of trauma and what bond means to himself as as a figure within fiction and i think blofeld is an okay tool I think yeah, uh, my problem with this film is Lea Sedow, but go on, sorry. Oh, specifically to me, it's like the way that they cast Blofeld in this is since he has ties to Bond's childhood, it becomes about Bond needs to go back to the very beginning to confront who he's been forever. And they did that better in the last movie. Right. Like the ways in which M and uh, Raul Silva, who's the villain of the last movie, tie into Bond growing up and becoming who he is, is done with much more like weight and ties into the actual movie you're watching than it is Blofeld is like his adopted brother uh, that they grew up together. And that stuff just kind of comes and goes and isn't really rendered with the kind of care that that stuff was rendered in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, But yeah, Leia Sado, um is the... I, I'm not going to say one way or another about her acting. Uh, I think the age difference and makes her not useful to the role she is cast in, in the plot. Because in, in the best version of this, you end up with a situation like the end of uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where Bond gives up being James Bond to go get married because he found like a thing that can pull him away from this awful life. And she's not the character for that. It doesn't make sense for him to be that person in this setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think um, the <clears throat> the biggest problem for the for me for the film is the Madeline Swan arc in general. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. she's an interesting character. I don't. When I said my problem with the film is Lesto, it's not Lesto as actress. It's more like okay. the character that is in this film is not useful. Um, and I don't think the there is enough between them that's developed to make me believe that she would be the person to pull Bond away from this world. Like yeah. that's Vesperland. There mm-hmm. it's Vesperland and it's M and then I don't think there was enough time put in to make this character uh, like a regenerative substitute for Vesperland. Yeah. And they could have done that. Like that that path exists. Like I said, Honor Magic Secret Service does this really well. Mm-hmm. Um and even gives you an out for future movies with the way that like that all turns up in the very next movie. Mm-hmm. Um but it is uh, frustrating to see them try to play with that in movies that try very hard to be referential to old Bond in the way that like new Bond or new M has come in at the end of the last movie and we're back to the old office with the quilted door and everything is the way it used to be. Uh, but now it's being played with much less care because they have to fit in more action scenes because the demands of what action movies are in twenty in 2010s, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm indifferent about Ray Fiennes' M as well. I don't think he's fine. Uh, yeah, I I think he... The way the, the way in which he represents, like, old Bond is back, like, oh, we reset this James Bond back to where he was in Doctor No could be interesting, but they don't do anything with it past him arriving on the scene and being M now. Uh, well, I would say that uh, you're probably right. They do mm-hmm. nod to Doctor No by having... Um, 
the car the the car that comes to pick up um Madeline Swan and, and Bond is from Doctor No. Yeah. Um, and the that that lair is supposed to be designed very similarly to the mm-hmm. one that Doctor No had in the film. Um but mostly that doesn't like the I've never been a fond uh, never been a fond. I've never been a fan of when they make explicit callouts to previous Bond films because I feel that they are not as useful as meta references or as ways to like unpack the series as a whole. They just they seem much lazier and they seem like Stan Lee cameos in Marvel movies in that they're the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially since uh, M is given all of this like rigmarole with the plot and Ray Fiennes is not exactly like bringing a lot to the character when Money Penny's right there and has been for all four movies. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's not bringing as much to the character as Judy Dench did. Judy no. And Judy Dench is like. Judy Dench's role as M, I think, was like such a critical turning point to how the how the films wanted to try to address certain aspects of the Bond series, successfully mm-hmm. or otherwise. But it was yeah. an acknowledgement that they were aware of those criticisms and wanted to address them. Yeah, but also with like the introduction of Naomi, Naomi Harris in Skyfall, you had a character who was seen as like equal to Bond and as invested in things as he is, but more functioning. Mm-hmm. And given the the things this movie is about, you could have given her a much bigger role, or even had her be the person he rides away with at the end. And Naomi Harris is like given one jokey scene where she's talking on the phone with Bond, and that's basically it. I would I would have watched that. Actually, my dream is that he ends is that Bond ends up with Q. Uh, that's fair too. I don't remember whether I think it's in this one. Um, the end scene, yeah, the end scene. I honestly thought that um, Q and Bond were gonna make out, a la um, die another day, when like it's <laughs> the virtual reality classes or something. Because mm-hmm. they do. I don't. I don't think it's just Ben Wishaw's kind of the, naturally the way that he carries himself. Um, I do think they are playing um, Q as queer. Hmm. Do you disagree? Uh, you know, I, d- I don't really have a clear, like, I don't have a firm opinion one way or another. I don't dis- I don't dislike that as a way to play it. I love it. He has two cats and a mortgage. Yeah, that's true. He does have two cats and a mortgage. Uh, which is more characterization, characterization of Q than we've ever been given before this movie. God bless. I I, I I actually never really liked Desmond Llewellyn as Q. I always thought he was like too mean. So I like this. Oh, I, I appreciated that because uh, I I generally think Bond is kind of a jerk and I like characters that kick his legs out from under him. Oh, I, I also think that Bond is a jerk, but I didn't think that the answer was like create another character who is as much of a jerk. Hmm. I really disliked John Cleese's turn. Oh, yeah. Q for a while. He was very bad. He's in the you video know. game. Who's in the video uh, games? You know, that's still bad. It's even worse, maybe. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about the Sam Smith song, um, The Writings on the Wall? So I am the biggest defender of it. I think it's one of the best Bond ballads You're that's wrong. been in one of these movies. Bad. I, I, it's great. What are you talking You're about? Um, so I won't say that it's the worst thing I've ever heard. My, I think there, the, the issues with it are that there are good parts of the song but the song itself never coheres like 
the the verse and then the chorus and then like the thing that's after the chorus are all quite interesting but they don't belong together in this song and then there's a problem of perspective james bond is never really that earnest and the song is like really really earnest and i think that is does not make sense for this film it would i think i think it is like because of sam smith's range it is he's basically singing a classical bond duet but with himself no and i think there is nothing bad. more appropriate for like james bond what do you mean a classical bond duet there are no bond duets are there not duets no uh okay but it is like a classical bond ballad and it's sung like the parts are split up where you could sing this as a duet and yet yes he's you could it all on his own and i appreciate that i think it speaks to bond's character where like despite his attempts to reach out to anyone this is a movie like this whole series is about a character that is fundamentally alone and always has been yes and is defined by that by his own like by his own choices or like the world he exists in and i think that mo- this song captures that nature of the character where, like all of his consternation about like dead loves and mentors is still part of like his efforts to push everyone who's still around him away until they're dead and then he'll mourn for them i swear to god if you make me like this song i will be so upset (laughs) i i see that i see that and i see its necessity in this cycle but i don't think Mm -hmm. this is the song to have done it i think this song is way too earnest because even my belief is that even if bond were being sincere and earnest they would still be this hard edge i think he's kind of like bobby and company for those of you that are not familiar with me listeners i'm obsessed with stephen sondheim's company it is like one of it is one of my favorite things ever and one of the greatest pieces of theater ever created and it is about this man who is having his 35th birthday party being thrown by his friends who are all like married or getting married or getting divorced and there's no Mm -hmm. linear plot but like either it's it's a um a melange of like different scenes and whatnot of him interacting with these couples um or the girlfriends he is serial dating and the point of that is for him to reconcile with how he feels about loneliness and i think james bond is bobby that's my great like conspiracy theory james bond is bobby from company i don't think that there's very little that is not earnest about craig's bond especially in skyfall in this movie um personally i like he's not particularly emotive but he's not the kind of like cavalier uh write everything off kind of character that you would see depicted in like more like in the sean connery bonds or the pierce brosnan bonds like he is taciturn but like deeply wounded and emotional and like speaks to that with like a wryness that tries to hide the fact that he is a character that is actively traumatized throughout all four of these movies. Okay. But you're talking about Daniel Craig's performance. You're not talking about yeah. Bond of the character. Sure. But like he is this Bond, like this Bond is specifically unique to him in a way that few other Bonds are. And like, I'm not even the hugest fan of it, but it's an interesting take on the character that runs throughout all these movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I am sworn to the, the Daniel Craig cycle more so than and, I think any other actor or any other, um, or more so than any other run of, of yeah. the films in the franchise. Um, and whereas, like, Writings on the Wall would be a ridiculous song to put in front of Pierce Brosnan, I think it's not inappropriate to put in front of a Daniel Craig movie. I don't think it's ridiculous to put it in front of a Daniel Craig movie, but I still don't think it's a good enough song to be able to capture 
both that woundedness and that vulnerability that is core to understanding this version of Bond and which informs kind of the way that that this these series are this series is um or this cycle of films is deconstructing that iconography but also I, I think it fails to capture kind of the harder um guarded parts of Bond it's it is sappy it is too sappy for me oh yeah no it's totally sappy but I think you need I, I think you know that need the other side of the more guarded like the more restless uh um angry side I think. I mean, I feel like every other song in in these Craig movies has been that, and I appreciate that there's one that's just not that this time. Well, I mean, I'm what I want is both. I don't need like just the angry song. Mm-hmm. You don't need. I know your name. I love. I know your name. I know your name. I think is the best James Bond theme. Okay. Do you disagree? What do you think is the best uh, James Bond theme? Probably from Rush with Love. Like the Matt Monroe song. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that is underrated. Golden really Yes. Uh, I actually, I think, captures... GoldenEye, I think, could have been a good song for this one. GoldenEye mm-hmm. is... Even though I think it's sung from, from the perspective of Alec Trevelyan, I would ar- mm-hmm. argue that it could also work quite well for Spectre. Because I think, even though it is talking about Bond, and mm-hmm. you could do some pronoun changes, or you could rewrite that song and make it from... The, his perspective, and I think that would be the perfect. I think it would be the perfect um, uh, cocktail of vulner- vulnerability, intrigue, and guardedness. Mm-hmm. So, tell me about Bond Twenty Five, Kyle. Well, I don't have anything to say about that other than Danny Boyle has been hired. Danny Boyle was like in the running to direct the new James Bond movie, as were a few other directors, including Christopher Nolan. And then apparently there was an there was a rumor that was posted on the Daily Mail that my friend sent to me, and I hate that friend. Not only because he sent this to me, but also because he does not like spawning, and I just have get been getting mad at white gays dismissing that movie. But anyway, um, Danny Boyle was in the league to direct the next Bond film with his writer, um, collaborator, um, whose name I don't remember, but they did, like, Shallow Grave and Trainspotting and whatnot together. And I was Mm. like, this is a bad idea. And then it was a rumor for a very long time, and then Danny Boyle came out and was like, yes, if they like the script, um, they will hire me. And then the announcement was made a couple of weeks ago that he is officially going to be the director of Bond 25 with that writer. And I'm like, this is a this is bad. This is not good. I hate this. Because I don't think Danny Boyle is so much a bad director as he is an identity-less director. He mm-hmm. somehow is able to make movies that are very stylish but are also very empty to me. That have no sense of identity or kind of... Maybe this is me ascribing way too much to the to autorism but they don't mean anything and I don't think they have much to say about him as a director or like the films within their own context. The one exception to me being 28 Days Later, which I think is a very good horror movie um, about like pandemic in the modern age. Um, but like, he's also so fucking annoying. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, ahead. I just, I, I, his movies 
just seem to exist almost amorphously as like the kind of movie that I think a lot of people, a lot of men in film school want to make in that they they are very stylish, but then that style doesn't end up having any meaning. They don't, it doesn't have like, a, there isn't a specific reason as to why that style is there. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a very, I think when these films are, I think when the, these Bond films are trying to be more ambitious in the way that they address Bond as this historical figure within fiction and within film and Mm -hmm. trying to address or confront the political context of what Bond means, both in the present as well as in the past, Danny Boyle is not the director to do that. Uh, Do you think that this is like an, a like basically punting on what the next vision for bond is like they're keeping craig he's still doing it this this uh, specter feels like the end of craig's movies and so many people are pushing for like oh bond should be a woman or bond should be like a black man or whatever um does this feel like to me this feels like we don't know what to do let's just get someone to put out a bond movie that's just just a bond movie nothing important and we can figure this out next time probably I would say it'll be just a Bond movie, but it will look different. Mm-hmm. Um, because previously, before they hired Sam Mendes to do Skyfall, all the Bond movies were basically like job for hire movies. Like occasionally they would get someone like Roger, Roger Splashwood for Tomorrow Never Dies and Martin Campbell, who has made two of the best Bond films, Goldeneye and Casino Royale. And, um, uh, Hold on, I'm looking up what I know. Um, they got Michael Apted, who directed the Up series the, of documentaries like Seven Up, to do the World Is Not Enough. They were mostly job for hire movies, and they didn't require anything else. Um, and even if they weren't as explicit, explicitly introspective and retrospective, um, they did not. They didn't. They had a house style. They had a house aesthetic that didn't necessitate um, a director who was also a stylist. But then once they rebooted it, Campbell created a particular aesthetic for his film, and then Mendes went very outre for his, uh, for both of his. And one of the things I love about um, the difference between Skyfall and, and Spectre is that Skyfall is very, very clean, sharp lines, very inky blacks, Whereas Spectre is very dusty and kind of almost exists within this world of the dead where mm-hmm. it's cloudy and, um, I, again, I guess dusty. You're looking, you, there isn't a, a long, um, sight of vision. Um, so the hiring of Danny Boyle makes me think that it's going to be stylish, but empty mm-hmm. because I don't think he's capable of making much else. Uh, I mean, I feel like so much of the last two Bonds have been uh, cinematographer dependent. Yeah. Do you think that might be true in the next one too? Or do you think Danny Boyle is just going to Danny Boyle it up? He's going to Danny Boyle it up. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of worried about that too. I'm like, I don't hate Danny Boyle, but he, him doing Bond does not excite me in any way. He, I don't think he has, maybe I'm wrong. He is the one who directed the, um, the opening ceremony for the London Olympics, which means that he yes. has like, it he is not id capable of making the connection between Bond as like s- spy and 
Hawks in action movies and then Bond as like greater figure with like a, a larger connotation and larger baggage regarding British imperialism and, the, and British history. Um, but I don't think he's going to be willing to make that jump. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see in two years or whatever. 2019, one year. It's going to okay. be shooting this November, I believe. Okay. My question is, <clears throat> what is the budget going to be like? Because um, Annapurna, there was a bidding war of a, over the next Bond movie because the rights had sort of elapsed with Sony um, and it was up for bid. So it was between Sony, Universal, MGM, and Annapurna. And Annapurna was the weird one in that because Annapurna is a much smaller distribution and um, production company. Um, mm-hmm. And previously, the films had been financed and produced either by United Artists or MGM or Sony, whoever was not bankrupt at the time. Um, and so Annapurna is weird because like they did they do smaller, not so much art house films, but they do um, smaller. Um, Films like Zero Dark Thirty and Spring Breakers and films that have a a microscopic scale in comparison to what a Bond film has asked of the last decade or so. Because I think Spectre is the most expensive film ever made. I have to check on that, but at one point it was the most expensive film ever made with a budget of anywhere from 250 to $300 million. And it's like who has that money? Like, Annapurna might guarantee them some sort of, like, stylistic or creative um, uh, impetus regarding what the next Bond film could have been. Now that they have have hired Danny Boyle, who knows? But Universal has gotten um, worldwide distribution rights, so I think they're mostly going to be fronting the money. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Could you still make a a Bond film on $50 million like you could in the uh, 80s and 90s? I would absolutely adore a Bond film made for $50 million. I actually think it would fix a lot of the problems with what Bond is, but I don't think they're going to do that. From Russia with love I fly to you much wiser since my goodbye to you I've traveled the world to learn I must return from Russia with love That's it for this first episode. We did good. Yeah. We did good. Uh, we have more movies next month. Kyle, do you want to tell people what you chose? I chose Reiner van der Fassbender's Corel, which is based on the Jean Genet novel. And I've never seen it, but I'm interested in the way that that film, um, in addition to um, erotica like Tom of Finland, ushered in a, a particular perspective and approach and aesthetic to queer masculinity and working class queer queerness mm-hmm. and that is available on filmstruck okay cool um and then i uh i am picking uh enough said which is the 2013 movie by Mac- 
uh, Nicole Holof Center, um, starring James Gandolfini and Julie Louis Dreyfus. Uh, no reason other than I wanted to watch it. Yay! Tried to get some lighter fare and uh, something a little more modern. Since you were picking old, I was going to pick new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe it's for next episode because I'm running short on time. But uh, when I was trying to define what I considered a new movie, it took a while to like try to figure out what my personal cutoff is for when I was like, "This is new. <laughs> this counts as modern versus old." Interesting. Um, what do you th- uh, What do you think your gut answer to that is? I would. Oh, that's hard. Um, I guess I would consider old pre um, 1975, pre 1980, okay. maybe. Yes. I, I don't disagree with you. For the sake of the podcast and the audience we had, I decided that my cutoff was 25 years ago, so it is 1993. Okay. That's fair. Um, but yeah, in my head, it's like around the 80s is probably where my cutoff is. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, that's what... Oh, go ahead. But I would also not call a movie from the 90s new, but I wouldn't call it old. Yes. I yeah. would call it middle age. <laughs> fair enough. Um... I did not check if this was streaming anywhere. Uh, it is not, though. You can just rent it from various rental services, um, like everything else, I, basically. Well, I will say for the record, I chose my pick with the knowledge that it would be on streaming sites that people could access it. I am thoughtful. I understand that. I don't. I'm not picking based <laughs> on that metric. To be fair, so and you don't you definitely don't have to. Oh, okay, because if I didn't have to, I would No, nah, I'm kidding. I would have picked this anyway. Okay. Uh so that's that. Uh Kyle, plug where you're at. Um you can find me on the internet writing around different places, primarily Pace Magazine. I also have a piece recently on um Into Grinders publication about gay shame and the boys and the man. Um and you can find me on Twitter uh, at Tyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R, because I'm very creative, although I'm taking a Twitter break for a little bit. But, um, yes, you can find me on those avenues. Um. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at E-M underscore being. Uh, this is an Abnormal Mapping podcast on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Go to abnormalmapping.com to see the rest of our shows. We're Patreon supported. You can go to patreon.com slash normalmapping to help support the show and all the rest of the shows we do. Uh, there's so many podcasts. Uh, please enjoy them. Uh, we will be back in a month. You can send us questions, of course, at podcastabnormalmapping.com. Uh, tell your friends about this. Rate and review on iTunes. Uh, all the things that you do with a movie podcast. Uh, watch some films. They don't have to be the ones we're watching, but watch something. Uh, film is good. And we'll be back next month. And happy Pride! Maybe this time I'll be lucky Maybe this time he'll stay Maybe this time For the first time Love won't hurry